Dear God, in the light of in the beginning, how is it going to be here in the ending? As we embark on a a new journey for just a few weeks. Come to us. Connect with our thought processes and show us a way. This family thing. Show us a way. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. The United States Postal Service came out with a, a commemorative stamp a few years ago honoring Boys Town, USA, just outside of Omaha, Nebraska. You probably have heard of Boys Town. It was founded back in 1917 by Father Flanagan. And he brought in five little runaway boys. The priest took them in. From that humble beginning, Boys Town, USA, has actually today developed an international reputation of caring and compassion for disenfranchised, delinquent boys. And today, girls. It's called Boys Town and Girls Town, USA. Anyway, back to that commemorative stamp. It's a picture of a little boy. My dad, if he were describing him, would call him an urchin. That's the word they used, I think, in this last century. We call him kind of a, you know, a, home, a street kid, a homeless boy, a ragamuffin. He's just come to Boys Town. Apparently, he's been asked a question because the boy answers. Somebody said something about it. What do you got on your back? I mean, that's heavy. Put it down. The words are chiseled on that... Uh, Commemorative stamp beneath the picture, the well-known words, He ain't heavy, mister. He's my brother. Apparently the boy had come, needing a home. He had found Boys Town and there that little ragamuffin kid on his back, his own brother. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Now I've got to tell you that back when I was in school, there was a group... Can you believe this? There was a group called the Hollies. I don't know where they got their name. I'm sure they weren't from Holly, Michigan. But this group took that phrase and shaped it, you know, pardon this baby boomer, but I, I think they shaped it into a rather compelling song that actually cut the heart and the fancy of this nation and the world. So I went onto the Internet this last week and I, I got a hold of the words for he ain't heavy, he's my brother. You can relax. I'm not going to sing this to you, but I, if you want to sing along, that's okay. No, no. Baby boomers will not only hear the words, they will hear the music with it. I apologize, Gen Xers. But here goes. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where, who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. So on we go, his welfare is of my concern. No burden is he to bear. We'll get there, for I know he would not encumber me. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. If I'm laden at all, I'm laden with sadness that everyone's heart isn't filled with the gladness of love for one another. It's a long, long road from which there is no return. While we're on the way to there... Why not share? And the load doesn't weigh me down at all because he ain't heavy. He's my brother. He's my brother. He ain't heavy. He's my brother.
Well, I say, pardon their Queen's English. But those boys, in that simple, simple little song, have told a shining truth. A truth, unfortunately, that is brutally challenged. The very first story outside the gates of the Garden of Eden. But if you put the story and the song together, ladies and gentlemen, I believe we are confronted today with a compelling truth. As I move around this parish and this campus, a compelling truth whose time has come for Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church. I want you to open your Bible back to that story the ladies just read to us a moment ago in the book of beginnings. Find it, Genesis. First story outside the gates of the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 4. Old, old story. I know you already know the story, but let's go back to it, will you please? I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Genesis chapter 4. Those of you watching on television, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Verse 1, now the man knew his wife Eve. Now, the man, ha-adam, that's what it is in the Hebrew. Because the article is there, really, NIV puts it Adam and King James, but it shouldn't be Adam yet. Adam doesn't, without the article, appear till the end of the, uh, the, end of the chapter. So this really is correctly translated. Now the man knew. Because that's, what, that's the way it is with sexual intercourse in a marriage. You know your wife. You know your husband. See? That's the whole reason why it's reserved for only marriage. Because you only know a person at that point mentally and emotionally and, and socially and spiritually. Then, code word in the Hebrew, then he knew his wife Eve. I think the NIV says, and Adam lay with his wife. Yeah, they shouldn't have put that. The word is no. He knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Now, you, didn't, you need to know, Moses is teletyping us a little secret message here because the King James and here in the New Revised Standard Version, these added words don't belong. It here's, what, here's what Eve says. I have produced, and that word produced in the Hebrew sounds like the name Cain. I have produced a man, the Lord. There's no with the help of, there's no from, it's the Lord. Moses is hinting to us that when Eve gives birth to that first little human baby, she looks into the face of that baby and believes that at last, at last, the Messiah and the Deliverer has come. Eve believes this, this is the promise of Genesis 3.15 that has now come true. Oh boy, was she, is she going to be in for a big surprise? Okay, verse 1, what does she say here? I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, let's read verse 2. Next she bore his brother Abel. The, the construction there would almost suggest that Abel came right on the heels of Cain. Some scholars believe they were twins. Now, others say there's not enough there to make that conclusion. And maybe by the, na by the name she chose for her second board, Abel means Hebel in the, in the uh, Hebrew. It means vanity or nothingness. And it could be that Mama, first boy has started to grow up, and Mama said, this, this boy is not going to be the deliverer. Trust me. So that when she gets her second born, she says, oh, there is nothing. There is nothing. It is, life is vanity, vanity. All is vanity. We don't know. We're just kind of surmising, reading Moses' original text, so to speak. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Oh, by the way, 
Seven times in this story, his brother, his brother, his brother, his brother, as if the writer Moses wants to make sure, I want you to know that the nefarious deed that will be perpetrated in a few sentences was done against his brother. Seven times, jot that down in the margin, seven times his brother appears, those words. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now, going on in verse 2. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. Let's not get real excited here and agitated. Oh boy, if you become a farmer, you're morally going to be a little tougher chance. You know, maybe I better drop my agriculture major here at Andrews University. No, that's not the point. There's no, there is no moral connection between the occupation, you want to be a farmer, that's fine, or a shepherd. Can't find any sheep these days, but just go ahead. It's still a, an acceptable occupation. And that's something they're killing these sheep off everywhere. No sheep left in Ireland. Few sheep left in England. We're just a we're just a pond away. Well, tis the times. So Abel becomes a shepherd and Cain, let's go to verse 3. Cain becomes a farmer. Now, in the course of time, verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. I want to ask you something. Anything wrong with bringing to God what would be called your first fruits? You know, some of the, from the, some of the lush grapes of your vineyard? No, no. Moses comes along millennia later and Moses says, Hey folks, you're supposed to bring the very best of your grain and the very best of your gardens. Bring it to God. Nothing wrong with bringing the first fruits. What's wrong is that obviously, very obviously, this is not, this is not taken up an offering time in Genesis 4. What's supposed to be happening here is they're having family worship. They're gathering at an altar. This is high symbolism time whereby what you do at that altar will demonstrate your faith that one day God Himself will shed His blood and become your sacrifice for your salvation. This is not just taking up an offering. So what Cain is doing, this is the point folks, what Cain is doing is a proud, high-handed, in-your-face God response. I, I am not going to bring what everybody else is bringing today. Cain's full name was Frank Cain Sinatra. I did it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And so what does Cain do on his little stony altar? Whoo! Beautiful, luscious pineapples, bananas, I know, mangoes, grapes, strawberries. For good measure, I'm throwing in an eggplant. Okay, so it's all there. Fruit from the ground. It's best to always give up what you don't like anyway. That's the way you sacrifice. Just give up what you don't want. You can have this, Lord, that old car. You can just have it. I give it to the missionaries in Africa. So he threw it in. So there's Cain's sacrifice. Yep, first fruits of the ground. Now, we, we don't want to get uh, waylaid here. In the course of time, we reread verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, verse 4, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. You see, it's an ancient creed. Cain and Abel have been living with this. They know without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. The ancients all knew that. So there has to be blood. Not from a bloodthirsty God, but from a God who is desperate to get through to the sin tackled human brain that because of your sin, I'm going to pay the ultimate price. Do you understand? I'm not going to kill you. You kill a lamb as a symbol of me. 
So Abel brings it. And oh, by the way, Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith. See, this is a faith response that Abel is bringing. Cain says, I'll do it my way. Abel says, by faith. By faith, the scripture says, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous. God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. Now, we don't know exactly how God showed his approval. There, you can read this in the Hebrew. You can read it in the English. There is no clue here. We know what's happened over and over and over again after Cain and Abel. We know what's happened. In fact, let me put a verse on the screen here. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 24. Here's what happens. At one time, the people were gathered in worship and fire came out from the Lord and shoom, consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell to the ground. I mean, we're talking about this is a major sight. Apparently, something visible has taken place. And it, it seems entirely logical to me to suggest fire came down. Fire burned Abel's sacrifice, but not a, not a spark touches Cain's. That's what Moses is telling us here. In fact, let's read the rest of verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. By the way, I don't want to miss this. Please note it carefully. It's clear in the original language. The Lord has regard for Abel first. He's not an angry God that needs to be appeased. Give me that sacrifice. I'll think about you later. No, 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 no. Moses is very clear. God has regard for Abel. It's not what's in your hand. It's not what's in your hand at all. It's what's in your heart. You know what? When you come to worship, this is an altar here. When you come to this church to worship, it's not because, well, I'm going through the motions now and it's the seventh day Sabbath. Therefore, I will worship God. God says, I don't care what's in your hand. It's what's in your heart. Do you love me? Do you trust me to be the one who can alone save you? So he had regard for Abel first. And then it says, for Cain, who? And his offering. He had no regard. Cain is is absolutely furious. Let's go back to verse 5. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Because there are only four in the family, you understand. All four saw what happened. Shoom, boom. Nothing on Cain's altar. Cain looks at his altar after the smoke clears. The fruit is untouched. Pineapple is still yellow. Strawberry is still red. Avocados are still lying there. They didn't even become guacamole. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And Cain's countenance fell. I have watched men, by the way, who, I have watched men get angry right in front of me. No family member of mine. I've watched that they, they have become so angry that physically their visage is literally changed. Let me tell you the clue you watch for first. Watch for the twitching nose. It's a twitching nose. There's, you look in the eyes, fire. The lips go purse. And literally, as the Hebrew describes it, the cheeks drop. They, they, the cheeks drop. There's an explosion coming. Cain is red hot. Oh, but I tell you, don't you just love the pre-incarnate Christ? This is the pre-incarnate Jesus. See? He, he doesn't just care about Abel. He said, I want to get Cain. He loves Cain just as much as he loves Abel. So Jesus, the Christ, I should say, the pre-incarnate Christ, hurries to the side of Cain. Here in verse 6. 
He says, all right, boy, I'm going to give you three chances. Three chances to confess your high-handed, stubborn pride. Get off of your high horse, will you? He's going to ask him three questions. Question number one, verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Nothing but stony, defiant silence. Question number two. Why is your countenance fallen? Nothing but stony, defiant silence. Question, I'm going to give you a third chance, boy. Question number three. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Nothing but stony, proud defiance. God says, all right, you're not talking, are you? Then let me talk. You listen to me carefully. And God speaks now. The pre-incarnate Christ speaks. Listen, Cain. If you do not do well, I must tell you, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. With a powerful metaphor, that Christ says, look, you know what your sin is? It is a salivating, ravenous beast just outside your door. Look out the moment you walk outside of that door. If you're not going to master it, it will destroy you. Oh, pretty serious about sin, aren't you, God? Yep. Cain, not a word. Verse 8, the very next tragic, tragic scene. Verse 8, and Cain said to his brother, Bro, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Pulled out a concealed handgun and just blew him away. The story of Cain and Abel is repeated a thousand times in our daily headlines. You know what? I cannot imagine the fainting horror of mom and dad, those two dear parents, when they miss both boys, because one boy will never come home. Neither one will come home. One's run away. Honey, have you seen seen Cain? No, that's funny, because I haven't seen Abel either. Where, Where are the boys? They go out into the field. Boys! Boys! Silence! I cannot imagine... The heart-numbing terror when they come across the crushed skull of their second-born, his crimson soaking into that dark, moist, primordial earth. I came to church today and I saw a dead raccoon. And my heart just... What would it be like as a mama, as a papa... To come across the brutally murdered form of your child. And I thought he was the Messiah. Jesus isn't getting, Christ is not going to give up on Cain. No way. He finds him. Verse 9, and then the Lord said to Cain, Hey, Cain, you're all alone. Where's your brother? I saw you two in the field together. Where is your brother now? And Cain said, I don't know. What is this? Am I my brother's keeper? The tragic primeval story of Cain and Abel is a troubling reminder that even within our own flesh and blood families, we can become utterly, utterly disconnected. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. He's really saying, no, I'm not my brother's keeper. 
This is why even today you will find flesh and blood brothers who have turned on or turned away from their own brothers. You will find today sisters who have rejected their siblings. You will find today parents who say, I am not my child's keeper. You will find today children who say, listen, they're too old for me. I am not the keeper of mom and dad. Am I my grandfather's keeper? And so what do we do? We take our grandparents and shuttle them off out of sight, out of mind. Am I my brother's keeper? The ground is still wet with the blood of earth's first murdered victim. Am I my brother's keeper? The fact of the matter is, it isn't only the brother. Some of us don't even have any brothers. Some of us maybe have a sister. Some of us are only children. It isn't only the brother and sister within the home. It's the brother and sister within the house. We've written them all off too, haven't we? Now, come on, be honest. You see, the ancients used to talk about, in, in the Greek particularly, oikos. The, the whole world is a house. We all have our little homes. I live in my home, you live in your home, you live in your home, you live in your home. But we're all in a big house. Residents of the house. Am I my brother's keeper in all those who live in the house? That's a fair question to ask. Look at I, I realize... That there is no point ever trying to pretend that the email you just got was originally sent to you. Because today, in cyberspace, every email is being forwarded at least 57 times. And so, I'm not going to be hurt if you say, oh, Dwight, I've already seen that one. I just got it last week, though. It takes a while to get to me, see. It's a wonderful email. Rather, rather uh, effective, I believe. Because the email puts it this way. Look, if we can take the whole earth, six billion, reduce them to 100 people... Keeping human proportions the way they are right now. So look on the screen. Don't look at me now. Look at the screen. There's the whole world. One hundred dots. Promise you there are a hundred right there. If, we, if that was the earth, 57 of those dots would be Asian. 21 dots would be European. 14 from the Western Hemisphere, North and South. And 8 from the continent of Africa. Let's put the hundred dots back there. Back up again. 52 would be female. 48 would be male. Put them back up again. 70 would be non-white. 30 would be white. Put them back up again. 70 would be non-Christian. And 30 would be Christian. Put the 100 back up again. Six of those 100 would possess 59% of the entire world's wealth. And all six would live in the United States. Put the hunter back up again because 80 of those dots now live in substandard housing. Put the hunter back up again. 70 of those dots are unable to read. Put the hunter back up again. 50 of them today suffer from malnutrition. Put them back up again. One dot is near death and one dot is near birth. 1% of our population is about to die. 1% has just been born. See? Put the hunter back up again. One. Yep. Only one has a college education. Put the hunter back up again. Only one owns a computer. You're pretty lucky, aren't you? Huh? Am I my brother's keeper? He's too heavy. He's not my brother. She's too heavy. She's not my brother. You can't tell me all a hundred dots are my responsibility. What am I supposed to do? Carry a hundred dots on my heart a day? I cannot carry a hundred dots. I can hardly carry one dot. Well, it's a fair point. I believe God would allow us to make that protest. And I believe He'd say, hey, you're right. You've got enough trouble. 
Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you can't carry the whole world. But I'm wondering, dear God, am I my brother's keeper? Look, God, I cannot carry California. Okay, my parents live in California, but I can't carry California. I can't even carry the state of Michigan. I can't carry Berrien County. Hey, but hey, he says, could you carry Berrien Springs? Could you carry a little village on your heart? Could you be your brother's keeper for, for the village? Could you be your brother's keeper for the campus? Could you be your brother's keeper for the congregation? Not so big now. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> nope. Cain said as he dried the blood off of his hands. You know what? I, I wish we could have one of those Regis Philman gizmos on who wants to be a millionaire. Where do they get these things? These little boxers, you give it to everybody in the audience and you ask them a question. Boom! Just like that, you know the answer. I wish we had one of those gizmos today because here's the question I'd like to ask you. I'd like to know how the faculty would rate on this one, see? I'd like to know how the students would respond and the staff. I'm curious how the members of Pioneer in the community, how they would respond. How about Andrews Academy? How would they respond? Here's the question. What do you think is the great need of Andrews University and the Pioneer Memorial Church? Okay, now, hit your answer. I'd like to know. In fact, you know what? I don't need one of those gizmos. I already know the answer. I've been around this parish. I listen to the voices. Oh, it's true. If you keep your conversations at the formal pleasantries level where most of the time most of us safely live and hide, you'll not hear it. But if you move deep, you, sometimes it takes a crisis to do so. If you will go deeper and probe further, then you will hear it loud and clear. Do you know what our great need is? The great need of this university is for community. Community. The great need of Pioneer is for community. The Human Resources Office has surveyed. They've got the empirical evidence. What people are asking for around here. I want community. I want to be a part of a place where somebody is my keeper. I belong. Somebody cares. Hmm. Richard, Richard A. Swenson, physician, in that marvelous book of his, and I'll get to it a little bit later as well, but in his book, Margin, he calls this the one anotherness. What people want today is one anotherness. You remember Norman Mailer? Yeah, he's still alive, a great American writer. Norman Mailer put his finger on the pulse of America when he spoke, when he wrote these words, actually. Something has been stolen from us that we cannot quite name. Something's been stolen from America and we cannot quite name it. Around here, I'll tell you, we know the name. We know that because we are so, we, we are so busy. We are so distracted. We are so preoccupied. You can ask faculty, you can ask staff, you can ask students or, or community members. You ask them, what is it that's been stolen from us? To a person, they'll say, community. Doing our own thing, but we've lost community. I know what you're thinking. And by the way, what you're thinking bears a faint resemblance to the truth. You're saying, come on, Dwight, don't you know this is postmodern America? It's not only postmodern, it's, it's, it's post-Christian. America is known the world over for its bold individualism. And you know what? You are absolutely right. I travel around the world. America's special weakness for which we are known is our rugged individualism. Because we think we're all John Wayne. You know John Wayne? Huh? 
John Wayne, who has the swagger, comes riding into town on that big steed. John Wayne, who said, I don't need nobody to keep law and order around here. And he always had that six-shooter just kind of hanging, balanced on his hip. See? John Wayne, rugged American individualism, does it all by himself, didn't ever need nobody except for the pretty cowgirl with whom he would always ride off into the sunset at the end. Somehow needed her. That's America. You're absolutely right. In this nation, we are reaping the fruit of our stubborn independence and our swaggering self-sufficiency. I did it my way all alone. And so individualism, isolationism have wounded our society. They have crippled our culture and we are a part of it. You got that one right. In fact, here, let, let's go back to Richard Swenson. I've been reading the book over spring break. Karen says this is a wonderful book. She's about through with it. It's called Margin. Let's put Swenson up here. Used to teach at the University of Wisconsin Medical School. Nearly all the indices of the scripturally prescribed relational life have suffered major setbacks over the last three decades. Marriage, worse. Parenting, worse. The extended family, worse. The sense of community, worse. Social support system, worse. Church commitment, worse. Church unity, worse. One anothering in church, worse. And it happened, he writes, seemingly overnight. Little wonder our pains are so acute, end quote. What has happened is our relationships have suffered. I was visiting with a faculty member about four weeks ago. Faculty member has a family member going through crisis. As I mentioned earlier, it's usually crisis that exposes, exposes our lack of community. And how does that work? Well, it, it works simply because when I hurt, when I have pain, when I'm suffering, that's when I desperately need community the most. I, I, I need to move out of my home. I cannot always find community in my home. I have to, when I, when I go to work, when I go to class, when I end up in that office complex, when I end up behind those little cubicles where we're all stationed, I need to know that there's going to be somebody there who's going to stop today and say, you know what, your face has been down. I think, I think your heart is not very happy right now. I need somebody who's going to say, he ain't heavy, man. I got the time. He's my brother. Talk, boy, talk. I need somebody. To say, I am my brother's keeper. That's a problem. We live in workplaces and school places around here that are high on productivity, that are high on accomplishment, that are high on task. And by the way, every successful workplace and school place needs to be high on that. But in the process, and here's where the rub comes, if I come out of my world of pain and go into that place in the dormitory, classroom, or the offices, and there's nobody to touch me, you know what happens? I move from my hurt privately into an aloneness on the job or the classroom that only exacerbates my pain and excludes my knees, needs, and I feel even more alone now. They did a study over in Alameda County in California that zeroed in on this feeling of aloneness. Dr. Swenson reports on this study. I want to put it up on the screen and you can read it with me. Study after study, and by the way, those italics are his. Study after study confirms that a healthy marriage, family, or community support structure yields better health and increased longevity. A kind of buffering system against the pain of distress. 
One of the largest surveys followed 5,000 residents of Alameda County, California for nine years. They got tracked. Now the conclusion. Here we go. After correcting for all other variables, quoting the study, those who were unmarried or had few friends or relatives or shunned community organizations were more than twice as likely to die during those nine years than people who had these social relationships. I.e., people out of community had twice the mortality rate as those in community. You see, when I refuse to be my brother's keeper, am I hurting him? I'm killing him. Just like Cain, I kill him because I consign him to an aloneness that will decrease his longevity. Whoa. I got an email after the, just before the spring break. I read it to the audience and the congregation while you students were gone. I want to reaccess that email. I'm not going to read the whole email. We, we looked at the real reason for the email before because it's a student, a four-year fourth year, getting ready to graduate student who wrote this anonymously to me. And he said, Dwight, I want to tell you something. I was in church when he gave that altar call. And I struggled with that. I want to tell you that God came down in that pew and took my life. And in 12 hours, he spiritually turned me completely around. That altar call was him calling to me. And I'm so glad he said it came at the end of four years of education here. How can you go to this school? He wrote me in this email and be so without Christ as I have been. Well, I was proud of that young man for writing me. But one of the sentences he makes is when he came into church three weeks ago, then came Sabbath, sitting alone again in church. Funny how you can be sitting with 2,000 people and still feel alone, huh? He asked me. He's right. You can sit in this place. 2,000 people. Hallelujah, we worship you, Jesus. And you can be all alone. You can be alone in the worship place. You can be alone in the workplace. You can be alone in the study place. Do you know what our international students go through? When they come to this campus with a dream to get graduate education, most of them, but they cannot speak a word of English and they have to learn English, do you know what it's like to not be able to speak the language of all the people around you? Our international students struggle with community here. You say, well, they got Najib Nakli. He's doing a wonderful job. Najib cannot handle the community of so many international students. If you and I are not our brother's keepers, they go without community. And we have some sad and sorry stories of marriages that go flat and families that disintegrate because there's no community to help them in a time of need. We desperately need community here. Push the gizmo, it would come up. Number one, we need community. I'm so grateful to learn that the Faculty Fall Fellowship in the year 2001 this year is going to focus, focus on mentoring community. That, that, that is a brilliant strategy because that's our need. Am I my brother's keeper? He's too heavy for me. I can't carry that boy. Somebody else stop along the sidewalk. Hey, by the way, students, you're just thinking faculty. Nope, you... Who lives across the hall and three doors down from you? Who lives across the hall and five doors down from you? That is your brother. That is your sister. If you're in Lampson. That is yours. Come on. I, I don't have the time, man. Come on. Do you know what? I've got, I got, I got to keep up with this. No, you have the time. You just got to have the heart. Our most desperate need, it's inescapable, ladies and gentlemen, is we need each other. We need each other. We are our brother's keepers. We are our sister's keepers. 
Eddie Gibbs, in his wonderful book, Church Next, puts it this way. Before we can believe, we must belong. That's right. Before we can believe, we must belong. I'm going to close with a personal testimony. I know a little bit about this business of community because for the last year and a half, I've been meeting every single week. I'm in town with a small group of men. It's a very diverse group, professionally, personally, ethnically. It's not the team I work with, though I'm blessed to work with a wonderful team and share community there. It's not that. God knows we need community in the places where we work. But the only way community will be extended is if we move beyond that little inner circle that we're always with anyway. But once a week, this other group, we meet. And get this, this, this will just blow your socks off. No curriculum. Nobody said, hey, okay, guys, here's a book now. Read the book and do it like the book. No curriculum, no agenda, no... Do, you, do we have to read through this? No. We, we, we'll show up with our Bible. That's about it. We meet together simply to talk together, visit together, and then pray together. That is it. But I tell you, to a man, if they stood up here, to a man, they would all testify that, that over this year and a half journey, our sense of community has grown deeper and deeper and deeper. The reason I'm telling you this is because it is so absolutely, this is, this, it's embarrassing. It's so simple to do something like this. <laughs> you know, I mean, in your dormitory, you just, you just get, hey, three or four. In the office place, hey, how about a lunch break? Once a week, not every day. These, these groups that try to do it every day, they burn themselves out. Well, what is this? But just once a week even, to come together. We do. Oh, oh by the way, leadership in the group, no big deal. Nobody's, nobody's a leader. It just passes, in very informal, just passes from week to week. Whoever's there, just go, whoever wants to take it, go ahead. What I'm trying to say is, there, there, there is nothing you need to do to begin to create community. Did you punch the little gizmo, we need community? You can start it. It's three or four, five or six. Can't do the whole campus and create community. You can't mandate community in a, in a congregation. It has to come when... Individual Christians say, you know, I am sick and tired of living without community and I'll take the initiative. I'll call somebody say, hey, come on up, man. Come on. How, how about you? Would you want to come too? Let's get a few of us together. No agenda. Talk and pray. Low key, low threat. I'm telling you folks, it can be done. I found out it really can be done. You see, the God who hung his head Beside Abel's grave is the same God who hung his head atop Calvary's cross. Same God. By the way, he died the elder brother. Elder brother killed his younger brother in this first story. In the last story, elder brother gave his life to save every other brother, every other sister. Ha ha, I'm telling you, it's that simple. Which is why I would like to invite you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to become, would you please, become a community of one and begin to create a community of two, three, four, or five, or six. It takes one. You start it. You do it. Am I my brother's keeper? What a foolish, foolish question to ask the one who created my brother for me in the first place.
I want to sing with you a hymn you've never sung before. It just got written in June of 1970. I say just. It seems new in our old hymnal. Written by a Dutchman who went over to England, the pastor, and then went to Geneva, Switzerland, Fred Kahn. Number 353. The reason I love this hymn, I was going through it this week, I said, I've never heard this hymn before, but it's so powerful because it brings the lecture room at the university, it brings the desk and the altar, that's the church, it brings, all, it brings the kitchen in, that's home, it brings us all in, and I'd love for us to, to get on talking terms with this hymn that we've never sung before. I want to end with this hymn, it's, it's beautiful. Betty... It's going to play, Betty Woodland's going to play the hymn through once. It's 353. Let's stand when she's through playing it. We'll stand together and then concentrate on those words and say, Oh, Jesus, let's start with that community. Start it with me right now. And now may the God who wept in the beginning because there was no community and who died in the end so that there might be community grant to you and to me His heart that we might have community right here, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This sermon by Dr. Dwight K. Nelson is available on audio cassette. Call 877-227-4800 during regular business hours and ask for tape number 434. Again, the toll-free number to call is 877 227 Please remember to ask for tape number 434.